Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, a podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're going to be doing something a little different on the program. Usually, we have a guest, and we present a conversational interview highlighting one of the many aspects of running and growing a financial advisory practice with some expert guidance from a guest. But today, I'm running solo. There's no guest scheduled, it's just me. And I wanted to take the opportunity to address a question we get here at Four Advisors all the time. How do I grow my practice through marketing? Most seasoned advisors started their practice after graduating college, maybe working at a wirehouse or bank, or in other capacity in an established advisory firm, CPA firm, insurance agency. They study and sit for their certification and open an RIA. They poll their family, their friends, their relatives, neighbors, colleagues, former clients, anybody they can find to build a client base and do their best to provide value and service to generate a referral from that small base in order to grow the practice. In the business environment of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that worked beautifully. People were connected through face-to-face relationships, they knew their neighbors, they socialized with clients and colleagues regularly, joined service clubs, charitable organizations, other groups to grow their sphere of influence, and the level of trust in that relationship was relatively high. If you were really diligent, and worked hard at networking and attracting viable client prospects, you could make a very comfortable living from just that size of practice by the time you were able to retire. In today's digital, less personal, yet more connected environment, people communicate and form relationships in a very different way, and advisory practice has changed as well. The modern solo advisor must have a larger client base due to some fee pressure, and has to offer a wider range of service at a lower margin, to compete with a much larger competitive pool of other advisors of various types, offering many different types of products and services in different ways. The pool of referrals has gotten smaller, as family size has diminished and there are more tools available for people to manage their own investments and financial lives. Wages have stagnated, relatively low interest rates in the last decade have reduced the power of savings and dampened net worth growth, and the rise of the resulting easy credit has changed the average family's financial picture significantly from 40 years ago. In order to service clients effectively and grow, the modern advisory practice needs expertise at transaction processing, custodial services, compliance services, a technology stack full of software and hardware that all needs to be updated and maintained. The average person's sphere of influence has actually shrunk from face-to-face basis, despite people having lots more connections digitally in terms of friends on Facebook or followers on Twitter or Instagram. Once advisors have exhausted the pool of face-to-face referral opportunities, their growth typically plateaus, without a way to scale up beyond the personal referral. That's where the marketing program comes in, and that's what we want to talk about today. Modern advisory practices, if they want to grow beyond a certain point, need to approach it in a different way than they used to. That doesn't mean that some of those time-honored marketing tactics don't work anymore. It just means that they need to be approached differently in order to be effective. Now, if you've tried marketing in the past, and the results were less than stellar, You may be thinking, ah, this is entirely a waste of time and money. And for some, it might be. Here's why. The four main reasons that marketing programs fail are, one, there's no overarching marketing plan. The effort was sort of ad hoc, an opportunity was sold and over the transom. No long-term thought was given to audience, market niche, or what this might yield. And the advisor figured, hey, I'll give it a try and see how it goes. Poor planning almost always yields poor results. Two, the effort wasn't thought all the way through and didn't run long enough. You put out a few emails, took out an ad or two in the local publication, and when the phone didn't ring, clearly it was marketing's fault. Inconsistency kills most marketing programs in less than six months. The effort was underfunded, number three. 
You took out one ad for a couple of weeks, or did one seminar, or joined one group as a sponsor for a few meetings at the basic level, and nothing resulted. Too small a spend doesn't allow you to reach a critical mass of exposure, didn't reach enough prospect eyeballs often enough for long enough to make an impression that will spur an action. Spend too little, and you don't ever get over that hump to driving interest, but the money's still spent. And four, there's no differentiating factor that separates your firm from your competitors. There's no story to tell that gives people a simple reason to hear your message and think about working with you compared to your competitors, of which there are far more now than ever before. With those elements in mind, I thought we'd tackle the first one for sure today, the marketing plan, and touch on the others peripherally to give you, the advisor, a roadmap, a guide, if you will, to setting up a credible, effective marketing program that will actually help you scale and grow your practice. In order to develop a workable marketing plan, you need to answer the following 10 questions, and we'll work through these one at a time. What are you trying to accomplish? This is the goal-setting feature that a lot of people give up. They want to get started. They're so eager to get moving that they just dive right in and don't really think about what it is they want in the end. Now, we know some things about goal setting, and we like to use the SMART model here at Pinnacle. Goals need to be specific. What is it you're going to do? Two, they have to be measurable. How are you going to know whether you've reached the goal or not? Three, they have to be reachable. Saying you want to be the biggest advisory in the country in two weeks is probably not terribly reachable for most. And they have to be timely. There has to be a deadline attached to all the goals so that you know you have some urgency and you have a plan along the way to meet at the end when the deadline comes up. So that's number one. You've set some goals. You've figured out what you want to do specifically. Do you want more clients? Do you want more leads that you can convert to more clients? Do you want more AUM? Do you want uh, more staff so that you can create a broader offering? Do you want to change niches? Do you want to create a niche? What is it you're looking for? Two, figure out your client profile. Who are you trying to reach? Who is your target audience? What is your niche? You can't know too much about your target audience. It's just not possible. You can't be too skilled at figuring out what the audience you're really trying to reach is. The bigger question, if you're trying to develop a niche, is what do they have in common? What makes them different from everybody else but the same as each other? That commonality is what you're going to use to offer them something specific that's going to attract them to you and your practice. Bigger questions inside of that one are, is that commonality we've identified something actionable? In other words, if they all like to fish, can I use that to not only identify them, but can I use that to, dare I pun, hook them and get them into your practice so that you're offering them something unique? If that commonality is something identifiable, is it identifiable by outside sources? Can you see it by looking at them? Can you gudge it by behavior? Can you track them down by what it is they do, what they read, what they drive, what they buy? Is there some pin that you can hang all this on that you can find these people in any kind of volume? Three, what daily common challenge do you solve for this specific group? And not having enough money to retire is not a common challenge for this group. It's a common challenge for everybody, so that doesn't count. You need to find something that is specific to this particular group that is caused by something that is common to this group. The second question in there is, do you have a specific skill that you've developed that feeds and fixes that challenge? Do you have something that you know no one else has or access to something that no one else has access to that fixes the problem they're facing? And three, do you have specific access to or knowledge of a solution that you can replicate? 
You can do it once because you knew Harry. Well, unless Harry's going to help everybody, that's not a solution. You need to find something that you have access to that you can repeat over and over again. All right, enough of my rant for a few minutes. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about brand and offer, and we're going to talk about tactics and media. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or solo financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you need some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options and choices out there but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time finding and helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need with a wide range of outsource options and top-rated professional investment management and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a senior representative at 201-919-4838. And we're back with Dave Polis, your host of Four Advisors, and today we're talking about building a marketing plan. Now, item number four on our list of questions to ask ourselves is, what can I do for them? You're trying to build a niche here, and we're trying to figure out how it is you can offer something specific that's going to help a specific group of people. So the question you're trying to ask is, what is it about you that gives you the power to help them? What specific skills have you developed? What specific access do you have? What part of your practice do you like best and therefore do better than anybody else that helps this specific group? What credentials do you have to back up that specific skill and have some credibility? That's what credentials are for. You need to make sure they're visible and they're shown and they're seen. Have you done this successfully for others? I know compliance won't allow for testimonials in any of our materials, but what you can do is offer up the fact that you have 40 happy clients or 60 happy clients that have all had the same problem and by golly, they're happier now that we've solved it. Number five, the big question is, how do I reach them? And this is the tactics part. This is where a lot of people start. And this is not the place to start. The place to start is back with who are you trying to talk to. But for right now, how do I reach them is important. Because remember when we talked about the ability to find them and find an identifiable trait that's identifiable from the outside, that's actionable. This is where that comes in because you're going to need some sort of access to these people in bulk. You're going to need some sort of ability to reach them through the media, either by buying a list and doing direct mail, uh, by buying an email list or renting an email list or creating a website that's attractive based on those traits. You're going to want to identify them as a demographic group in social media if you're doing those promotions. You're going to want to know who you're inviting if you're doing events. You're going to want to know what they read, why they read it, for things like targeted advertising in specific niche products and, and niche publications and websites and blogs. You're going to, want to know what meetings they attend, what conferences they go to. If you're doing sponsorships and niche trade shows and that sort of thing, you got to know the audience's habits. you got to know their behaviors. And those kinds of things, that research is what dictates the tactics that you use, the approaches you use, the media you buy. Everything is guided by what that audience is about and what they want. So, if you answer those questions accurately and honestly about your audience, they will guide your choices. Now, the next question is, you've got all these various approaches. Which one do you pick? Well, you pick the one that's going to reach them the most reasonably, 
for the best value, and that's going to be repeatable over and over again. You don't want something that happens once every 10 years, because if you miss it, you don't get another shot at it very easily. Something regular and routine and constant. You'll hear me harping over and over again during this and everywhere else about the need for consistency and constancy in your marketing. Because doing it once is not going to get it done. You're going to have to keep going over and over and over again, refining the message, testing against it to find out what works and what doesn't, and keep it up over and over on a consistent basis because otherwise it's going to fail. Now the question about messaging becomes, number six is what language do they speak? And we've learned this through working with trade associations and membership organizations. Each sort of niche or sector or small group of people develops its own lingo, its own language, its own form of addressing various challenges. Part of this is just natural speech patterns that develop as people converse about a, a given topic. Some of it comes from meetings and conferences where there's a title where somebody will coin a phrase or a word. Some of it has to do with terminology specific to that industry. You need to learn those terms. You need to speak to their issues specifically so that you're speaking the language they understand and that resonates with them. You need to use titles that are used in their business, not necessarily in ours. You need to match their cadence and their style and their level of formality. If you're talking to Texas cattle ranchers because they have a specific need to uh, manage a, a line of credit to buy cattle with, you're going to be speaking in a very informal, very direct, very concise form, as opposed to a group of bankers who may have a lot more formality and a lot longer verbiage and a different cadence and a different style. Even when writing, you're going to want to write in their style and their form because and using their terminologies, because if you don't, the message is going to sound like an outsider. It's going to sound like an alien, and you want to sound like one of them. Next question is, what do I want from them? What do you want them to do? And this is going to be driven largely by your media choices, but also by your tactics. If you're using direct mail, the answer you want really is a response. You want them to do what you're asking them to do on the response form. If you're using email, the answer may be reply. The answer may be go to the website we instructed you to following the link we gave you or respond to this invitation through an RSVP by driving to a website. Uh, it may be picking up the phone and calling. It may be clicking on a link and buying something. It may be setting up an appointment through my calendaring software. Whatever action you want them to do, you have to guide them down an emotional path to where that action is very logical, it's very simple, and it's very emotionally fulfilling to do. It's going to give them what they want immediately. Today's audiences are all about immediate gratification. If you can fulfill that, you will have a far easier chance of getting a hold of prospects in order to talk to them specifically about their needs and convert them into clients. You need to figure out what that contact mechanism is and you need to plan for it. You need to drive your internal infrastructure around that contact mechanism. If you're asking people to pick up the phone, you might want to get a second phone number just for that. You might want to inform your front desk staff or your customer service people that that phone number is being used. And anytime you pick up that phone, there is a potential customer on the other end who you've never talked to before. That requires some infrastructure, some messaging, some building of, of pieces and mechanisms internally so that you can take advantage of all the things you've worked so hard to gather. All those contacts that you wanted to come back to you are now coming back and you have to be able to take advantage of that. So you have to think this all the way through and build it so that from end to end it is seamless and easy on the customer. Now, how are they going to find you? You have to make a choice at some point whether you're doing inbound or outbound marketing. Outbound marketing has things to do with 
emails and phone calls, cold calling, direct mail, uh, drive to web, SMS, texting, anything that goes out of house that wants you to retrieve a response is outbound marketing. Inbound marketing, on the other hand, is things like blogs, webinars, podcasts, in other words. Anything that you're putting out there that people passively can take advantage of that makes them want to talk to you and bring you their information or their business, that's inbound. You want sort of a mix. It's actually, uh, inbound is sort of giving permission to market to them because they've contacted you first. Web searches. They're going to find you on the web. The question is, what are they going to find when they get there? A website is key to any credibility and almost any action you're going to do in terms of, of outbound marketing because the first thing they're going to do is check you out on a website no matter how they heard about you. If the website does not give them the information they want, does not give them the information they expected to get when they got there, and doesn't make it easy, one, two, three clicks away from the information they're seeking, they will bounce off and go elsewhere. You need to build a website that is professional, that is competent, that is credible, and that it works to your advantage. And that doesn't mean that it has to be very expensive. What it does mean, though, is that you have to think it through. You have to write it carefully. You have to find a professional to help you build something that actually works. It's got security certifications. It's got widgets. It's got response mechanisms. It's got all those things you need to make sure that this thing functions up to the newest and latest protocols and standards. Plus, website also is the best place to house all your content. You can send stuff out with a link to the other content site where you picked up that cheap article, but if they don't drive it back to your website to get more information about you, it doesn't do any good. Content marketing needs a place to live. Also, you're going to have to create a search presence and a good website with a lot of backlinks and other things that connect it to the rest of the universe around it in, in the digisphere is the best way to get a digital footprint. Some of that is search engine optimization, which really means you're just taking search terms that people use to find businesses like yours and adopting them in your copy so that you're actually coming up on search engines more often than the other guy. And that's the work of a professional that specializes in that. And I highly recommend that you go find one if you're building a website. They will help you immensely. And SEO isn't a one and done either. It's an ongoing process rather than a service. So you're going to want to sign an engagement of some sort with somebody who knows SEO that can help you work through that. You can also create sales funnels on your website, which means once you've captured someone's interest, you have a way of recapturing it over and over and over again. They can go back, they can find different things. When they click on something, it may then trigger an email going out to them that offers them something similar or something else along the same lines, a logical connection. It's a low-level version of the algorithm that somebody like Amazon would use to show you other people bought this item, they also liked this, this, and this. It's a way to get them back to that site. It's a way to keep them driving towards what you want, which in that case is to make an appointment with you. So that search funnel gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and every hit they take gets them closer and closer to raising their hand and saying, I want to talk to somebody in your office about managing my money. Now, you've got all these beautiful things working out there. You're sending out emails regularly. You've got a phone number specifically set up for responses. Your direct mail's going out once a month. You're posting to your blog and you're creating new web forms all the time. You're giving away free books. You're doing all the good stuff right. How are you going to measure whether you're being successful or not? And this goes right back to our goal setting in the beginning. How will you measure your success in all this depends on what metrics you built into those goals in the beginning. If you're measuring just lead production, that's one measurement. But does that really tell you what it is you want to know? 
that tells you your marketing is attracting people. It doesn't tell you if it's attracting the right people. You want to measure responses. You want to measure RF, uh, RSVPs to your seminar invitations or to your webinar invitations. Those are very good metrics of engagement. Again, they don't tell you whether it's an ideal candidate on the other end of the phone or the other end of that webinar to be a client of yours. You want to measure your close ratio. That's an excellent engagement device and ability to tell whether your clients are being attracted by the right things. You want to measure AUM. You could get one client and make your AUM goal if it's a very, very wealthy one. So that's a tougher one to measure unless you have a very narrow client window in terms of the size of the AUM you're looking for. In that case, you're looking for somebody with a very fixed number. It's very repeatable and you can measure AUM incrementally and, and decide whether your marketing is being effective at reaching the right people. Are you measuring followers? Are you measuring likes? Are you measuring friends? All these uh, social media metrics are terrific, but they don't translate directly into money unless the marketing behind it is built. The infrastructure behind it is built to draw them in and let them actually speak to somebody in your office in person. Now, after all this, you may be thinking, how much does all this cost? And you can figure that out on your own fairly simply because we're not going to figure out what it costs to do. We're going to figure out backwards. How much do you need to spend? That's a very different question. Think about it this way. If you have a goal of 10 new clients, okay, for the year. Now, you have to be specific about the dates. So you have a deadline. Starting in January, if you want 10 new clients this year, all right, how much are those clients worth to you? You have to do a little math. The average million-dollar client at 1% bills $10,000 a year. So those 10, 10 new clients are worth $100,000 this year. How much are you willing to spend to make $100,000? That's where you set up your budget. And you work backwards from how many you can handle. Now, how many are you going to have to actually talk to on a prospecting basis to get 10? That's another metric. It may be 10 to 1, it may be 5 to 1, it may be 40 to 1 if you've missed the target by a little or you're very broad about your targeting. So if you need to find 40 or 50 or 80 or 100 people to talk to to get those 10 clients to come across, you're going to need to expand your marketing a little bit to include something that will respond and deliver 40 leads for you. Now, direct mail, that 1% rule still works. And email, it's more like an eighth of a percent or a seventh of a percent or a fifth of a percent. So you need to multiply the number of people in your pipeline, in your funnel, before they become a lead by those numbers as well. So now you're talking about 10 new clients. You're talking about maybe 400 prospects to get that. And you're talking about 40,000 outgoing names that you need to market to in order to distill it down to get 10 new clients. Now, how much is it going to cost you to find 40,000 of anybody? Not terribly much in the digital world but it may cost a little bit to be doing some direct mail or to find 40,000 people that want to see your webinar. Or if you're trying to do seminars, the metrics are a little different, but you still need far more to invite than you're ever going to speak to in person. So you need to get this sort of winnowing process in your mind when you're budgeting and just do it backwards. Find out what your goal is in terms of clients or numbers or AUM and work it backwards and out until you come to a number of people you actually need to contact in order to get it. Pick whatever metric you're going to use for your pricing, pick whatever media you're going to buy, pick whatever tactic you're going to use, figure out how much it costs per person and multiply. And there's your budget for the year. You can also look at it as a single year because you're spending in that single year. You can also look at it as the lifetime value of that client. Lifetime value of a client with a million dollars that spends roughly 20 years with you is $147,000 for that client. 
multiply that out by the 10 clients that year. And now you're talking about a very tidy living before too long. So again, a lot of it is working the math backwards to figure out what it is you really want to achieve and figuring out what it's going to take to get you there. Now, the other two ancillary pieces are you have to look at the calendar. We've talked about being consistent. We've talked about being constant. You need to be on all the time, but you don't need to be on to the same degree all the time. If you have a calendar uh, in, in your business or your sector or niche that you've picked that's very cyclic or very seasonal, if they have highs and lows, if you've picked maybe CPAs as a, as a group to go after uh, for client referrals, you're not going to get a hold of a CPA between February and June. They're just out of business. They're ghosts. They're doing taxes. They're busy. That's their worst season. They're not going to get responses, and you can't use those responses during that time to gauge your ability to be successful. What you are going to be able to do, though, is do your planning and execution portions during that time of the year. So as soon as they poke their heads up in May, you've got a gangbuster program to go out there and say, hey, you survived another year. You're back at it. Now let's talk about how we're going to develop a relationship that feeds us both for next year. And they're more than willing to talk to you about it at that point because they've done the job. They finished. They're relieved. They're relaxed. They're ready to go. Spring wedding season. If you're looking for younger clients, they've just had a change of life. They've gotten married. Now they're accounting for two sets of income as opposed to one. Great time to get a hold of people. Other seasons that happen to, to go with your niche particularly well. We talked about a guy that was doing, uh, Michael Kitts has mentioned a, a niche where he was, uh, an advisor was doing nothing but talking to his fishing buddies. Well, it turns out fishing seasons are different in different parts of the world, and these guys were actually busy year-round in these tournaments, but there were certain highs and certain lows that he took advantage of to make sure that he was really reaching those people at the right place at the right time. You have to consider your audience's calendar, not yours, when you're doing this stuff. And you don't want to drop off the radar entirely. You just want to reduce exposure in those downtimes so that you're not wasting money when nobody's looking. That's really the key is to, to keep the money flowing enough to keep your present, but not enough to be really pushing hard during their downtime because they're just ignoring it. You're wasting. Number 12, what is next? You got to think about all this stuff thoroughly. You got to plan. You got to do your research. But then what? What do you start? Well, there is a series of templates and action plans. You can read 100 business books on how to build a marketing plan. They'll all tell you the same thing. Do your customer research. Figure out what it was you want to do. Think it through and execute. Just get started. Do something constantly all the time. We tell people that one of the best things to do is sift through all these questions. Get some answers for yourself. Pick one thing that you really want to do. Do it well. Commit thoroughly. Fund it adequately and just work it to death. And you'll see what happens. And the next year, if that didn't work, you do an assessment. You look back and go, okay, here's why it didn't work. Learn from the mistake and go back and try something else the next year. That's how you work it. Marketing is an iterative process. It is not a one and done. It is not a final decision. It learns from its mistakes, evolves, and moves on. So don't be afraid to make those mistakes. You're not going to make very many if you think through these processes and go by the numbers. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and you've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. 
This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. 